Welcome to Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, the show that brings you illuminating interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders throughout all corners of the real estate sector. Each episode will feature different masters in real estate, revealing challenging lessons they've learned, their secrets to success, and opinions regarding the state of the market. This is Joshua Bourne, Managing Director of Strategic Initiatives at RCLCO Real Estate Consulting. If you're a regular listener to our podcast, then you know that since 1967, RCLCO has been the first call for real estate developers, investors, the public sector, and non-real estate companies seeking strategic and tactical advice regarding property investment, planning, and development. Welcome to the latest episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. Today, I'm talking to Sandy Siegel, President and CEO of Newmark Merrill Companies. With a focus on retail innovation, Newmark Merrill's mission is to provide quality shopping destinations to underserved communities while facilitating tenant and client success through consistent results-driven connections that positively influence and improve the neighborhoods their customers call home. Sandy, thanks so much for joining us as one of the best minds in real estate. Josh, I really appreciate it. I think you're shooting low on best minds, but I'm happy to be here. Oh, we're glad you are. And I think our audience will make that determination at the end of this, huh? So uh, I know we've had some great one-on-one conversations and discussions. We obviously have a personal relationship. Uh, and I'm I'm appreciative of the chance to share your story and your insights with our guests, though. Uh, we'll likely touch on some of this in more detail. But I know Sandy from our involvement together in Jewish Federation here in Los Angeles, specifically within the Real Estate and Construction Division and also the Community Leadership Institute program that I was a mentee and Sandy served as a mentor. And, and I know that community engagement is a huge part of your story. You do a fair bit of work with homelessness as well, which we can speak to. But maybe first, before we get into all the good details, can you just give us a bit of background about yourself, both personal and professional? Just tell the story. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely Josh. So, so I was um, and have been a resident of uh, Los Angeles my entire life. Um, I spent six months when I was 16 in New York City. But after that, I spent my entire life really within 15 miles of where I was born. Um, I was brought up by a single mom who did her very best to raise two rambunctious kids. And, you know, I... Got an entrepreneurial itch early in my life. And I mean, early, like seven and eight years old, when I would do things like liberate candy bars from drugstores and sell them to get pinball money or go into the uh, donut store dumpster to get day old donuts and sell them for a nickel each. So I had a big entrepreneurial spirit. I was blessed in that my mom realized that she needed support to raise me and got me involved through Jewish Big Brothers to go to a camp called Camp Max Strauss, which still exists and which takes care of at-risk youth regardless of religion. So I was in a camp which was about 10% Jewish, 90% non-Jewish, but all inner city and disadvantaged children, and really got an appreciation at that time for what we could do and what what little things people could do to make a big difference in in kids' lives and people's lives. Um, My first mentors were the counselors at that camp. So, you know, that that was kind of the, you know, the start of that for me, that kind of inspiration of, wow, you know, these people made a huge difference. Uh, You know, here I am you know, 50 something years later, and I can still remember every day at that camp. So that was a big thing for me. I guess another major thing was I got into computer programming when computers just microcomputers first came out when I was 12, started programming in a whole series of languages and learned to computerize accounting departments. And I did that from 12 to about 17 and made a bunch of money. Um, That taught me a lot of structure, the value and obsession with money and the good and bad side of that. And then I used that to get into real estate when I was 20 and start built my first shopping center when I was 21, did a whole series of those. I basically started a shopping center business for a home builder 
and um, worked at that company as their, as their founder and head of shopping center development, became the CEO of that company. So I ended up running the home builder as well. And when I was 30, I made a decision. I, by then I was married and had my first three kids. You know, I wanted to do something for myself. So when I was 30, I started Newmark Merrill Companies with two amazing partners, Brad Pearl and Jim Patton. You know, we made a decision that's still true today. We would be 100% retail focused. We would be vertically integrated. We would lease. We would we would we do our internal leasing, our management, our marketing, finance. All those all those things would be done internally. We would not be in markets where we couldn't drive, where a partner level person could drive within. Then it was one hour now because traffic is two hours. Go see a site, be on a site, read the newspaper. But most importantly, serve people who do not normally expect to have high quality real estate in their communities and uplift their communities by giving people services that would not typically be associated with distressed communities. That's just been a great model for us. And my biggest blessing is seeing people react to the retail we put in place and seeing every day our retailers prosper because of how they serve the community and the community be uplifted by what those merchants do. It's wonderful to see a mission behind the real estate element as well, which I don't think you hear about too frequently, especially in the retail space. I think you guys are are unique and different. And maybe just real quickly, how large are you now? I mean, I know you're, you're, you're sizable, so maybe just share that real quick with the audience also. Yeah, today we have 91 properties, uh, representing about 11 million square feet. I mean, I really measured off tenants. We have about 2,000, just over 2,000 tenants in three states. We're in California, Colorado, Illinois. Again, all those boxes is based on partner-level people who work every day in those communities. And then head office, we come and visit those and take care of the centers that are closest to us. And I think your story is so interesting because real estate is such a want a slow industry to change and in particular to adopt technology. And so to find somebody who kind of made their way into it through technology, I mean, really come full circle with where we stand in today's society with prop tech and everything that we're seeing. What was it about computers and technology that you saw that you could leverage to get into real estate? Or what was that sort of intersection or crossover that allowed you to maybe take that leap? Yeah, look, it's, it's a great question. And I'll tell you, it, it, you know, some, some is... Um, Counterintuitive and sounds very intuitive. Computer programming, especially back then, there was no model to follow. So you were both highly creative and highly structured at the same time. You didn't have unlimited memory resources or other resources like you have today. So you had to be very structured, but you had to be very creative. And those two, you know, skill sets really play off really well in what we do today with buildings. And you know, you have to build a building that stands, but you also have to be creative with what how it looks and and how you tended it. And the beauty of retail is it throws off tons and tons of data, okay? So when I got into retail, I mean, it it basically was this. You found a corner, you pulled an old census report, you looked at what what was, you know, do you have enough people? It seemed like the traffic's good. You build a box, you put up a leasing sign, and you wait for it to fill in. Once it's filled in, you're sort of done with your job. I mean, that was sort of the thing. Collect the rents and do the next one. In reality, retail has a big advantage that we typically throw away. Totally throw it away. We get tons of data all the time, right? How many customers come every day? Where they visit? Where do they cross shop? How long do they, how long do they stay? Do they like what the experience they're having or don't they like the experience? How's that all play together? So this data collection piece that I came from before and the analytic piece that kind of was my adolescence because it certainly wasn't dating, really, really has paid off big dividends because today, take COVID as an example. 
The day after COVID effectively started, I, I call that, you know, the, the critical weekend where everyone's, oh my God, they're shutting things down. We knew which tenants were still getting traffic. We knew which tenants were out of luck. We knew which tenants were halfway in between. We knew what was happening to our customer in real time that, that next day. A lot of people didn't have any of that information. We could, within a week's time, tell whether people were saying on their social media posts, are they scared, happy, thankful, grateful, protected? And we can monitor that and manage to that. It is an incredible tool always, no, no time more so than in the last two years, because I can see real-time data that we can monitor. And yeah, it was a it was an incredible thing. Now, on a personal note, the reality was this. Being a computer programmer was, especially back then, was a lonely, you know, male-orientated thing, okay? And going through your adolescence, sitting in a room with a computer while everyone's having fun on Friday, Saturday night, wasn't perfect for me. And all the glamorous guys back then were the real estate guys. There was a Tom Vu who sat on a yacht. So for me, tangible trumped virtual. And the idea that I could use some of my skill set and use at the back end into building real things was super appealing to me. Yeah, it's amazing. And I think it's funny how it feels like we're back in a similar spot. History repeats itself where now everybody's still behind computers again and maybe actually going backwards into the uh, the metaverse or the virtual space, right? But we'll come back, I think, to some of those analytic takeaways. I think that the data and the trends you're seeing there are probably worth sharing and are really interesting. But maybe even just before that, you, you touch on all the power of the, the data that you guys hold internal. And I actually think that's important to understand for our audience is that while you guys are retail owner operators, you actually have a data business as well that's related to that space. Do you just want to share a little bit about that since you've sort of sort of teased it already, essentially? Sure. Yeah. We started now 15 years ago, we started something called Bright Street Ventures. And Bright Street Ventures, which is run by my brother, who got into technology at the same time I did, basically, but then went into real estate and then went back into the technology space, did a number of startups, came in. We started a company originally just to help take all of our data assets that we were looking at and shepherding them together and having one person who could put them in one place so we could see them all on one screen. And then subsequently, we became a big investor in a number of companies. So we, we made 41 PropTech investments, very notable one, which um, a lot of people know because it's getting a lot of use as Placer. AI, if, if people have heard of it, and, you know, we, we were retail customer number one. We helped them transition from being in the casino data business to the retail business. Fantastic business, but we've done a lot of those. But we're both an active investor in real estate, uh, in real estate tech. We implement that tech to see, make sure it works before we invest in it. We often join the boards and that puts us in kind of the front edge of what's being developed out there. And sometimes we obsolete our own technology to bring in new technology, just keep things moving forward. It's great to see uh, see it or hear about it when the full ecosystem actually works and everybody's vertically integrated. You can tap into it, which is, which is nice. So maybe putting you on the spot a little bit with the last two years in particular, some of the data you've been watching. I mean, are there any trends that you've seen that have been extremely interesting? The snapback of the customer, the customer's incredible desire to go back to retail and bricks and mortar post opening up. Now we're closed down and we're opening up, but you know, we'll see how fatigue that customer gets. But you know, the fact that last year turned out to be as strong as as strong as it did was just an amazingly good surprise. Now, you know, you lock people up, you stimulate the hell out of them with, with kind of free money, you have effectively full employment, um, people are gonna walk out of the house. So, you know, some of that's you know gonna burn off. But 
very impressive numbers, incredibly impressive numbers on customers returning very quickly. A trend that I think we believed in, but we didn't know would be validated as, as well as it would be, and it's talked about a lot, but rarely you can you see it in such a you know micro view was customer loyalty. The customer, if you if you got past their head into their heart, the customer was great. A big thing we spent a lot of time on. I did, you know, we did 20, 25 murals. We did 50 outdoor seating areas. We did weekly mailings to our customers. We introduced who was working at the local Jersey Mike and the manager of the Best Buy. And when we shared the notion that you're supporting your, your community by shopping locally, and they saw these how hard these local merchants were working, they reciprocated. You know, communities are just amazing. So, so, you know, two kudos right off the bat. The small business person or, or tenant is, is, you know, a lot of people would call them, but I, I love them as merchants, small business people generally, were much better and much more resilient than we would have given them credit. For. And very few of them took advantage of the situation. They realized they needed to be honest and open. We were honest and open. And once we knew we had a partnership, they were great and they were fantastic. Secondly, the, the power community and the, and the connection with retail is unbelievably strong. You would have thought, you know, because of all, all the um, online stuff, you know, that that was being that that was being removed. No, I think it was making the retailer maybe raise its game and being challenged if they didn't do a good job. But there's a lot of community desire to go to stores, shop, have experiences, make memories. I think that's a very positive sign for what we do. It's great to hear. And I think, um, you know, it's something that resonates in our business and real estate as well, but also is just more of a, a good person related trait, right? Which is at the end of the day, these are relationship driven worlds that we live in and people want to feel connected. And, and I think the last two years have taught us that there's an opportunity to reconnect or to put emphasis on those connections for folks. So it's, it's great to hear that the data is showing that as well. well. On that, let me add one point. If I ask people what the biggest disease is in the United States, what do you think the big what do you think the big biggest issue from it's not technically disease, but biggest disease is in, in the United States? Only because it felt like a leading question. I would probably guess something around like loneliness and mental health. hundred percent loneliness. Not loneliness is number one. Okay. If you ask a percentage of the American public how how, how much they feel lonely at different times, you, you get an incredibly high, high number. So people are looking for ways to feel connected. And to the extent we provide it. You're getting rewarded. That's absolutely great for our, our listeners to hear. And I'm totally in that boat as somebody who, you know, my living is focused on business development and client relationship. I'm used to seeing you multiple times a year at the events we would attend together. We do our, you know, our annual uh, real estate and construction retreat to, to not have that the last couple of years makes it more difficult to keep those relationships in place. And I miss it. So there is a loneliness component, even, even for us on this call today or on this podcast right now. So that's great to hear. And I think it's nice that the data is sort of supporting what you're trying to do as well. You know, I'm guessing technology is sort of the answer to the next question, but I wonder if it's a bit more nuanced in that other than taking the analytics from what you're seeing, I mean, what else over the last 10 years or even your business horizon, have you seen really change or affect your business in the way you think about it going into the future? Yeah, I think a couple of things is one is the partnership between landlords and their merchants is evolving in a big way. And, you know, some, some of that could be good, some of that could be bad. But the idea is that we can no longer pretend like our job stops at the storefront line and it goes into the store. And the realization that even if you have great credit and a great lease, you may not end up having a, having a great outcome 
if you guys don't figure out a way to work together. The energy that we have to put forth into keeping those relationships fresh and alive and mutually beneficial, I think is a, is a big, big thing. Secondly, the need to be a placemaker yourself, to understand that you can't just rely on individual merchants to create the environment, that you have to be an active participant in creating that through marketing, promotion, different kinds of things. You know, we had 20 Santas parachute in and helicopter rides and all these other things that you that you end up doing. That's a huge trend. The other area that I think is going to be surprising to some is location still important, but it's not a hundred percent important. Because in an Uber world, in a automated driving world, we have to think in terms of travel is more productive. And you may find that people say, well, I don't care if it's on if it doesn't have great parking, I don't care. I, you know, I get dropped off and I get picked up. It's an Uber environment for me. It's a, it's a driverless car environment for me. So I think we have to think in terms of how we're designing our buildings and how they're going to work in this kind of new paradigm that's coming down the pike. And, you know, people are 100% focused on millennials. The fastest growing group of shoppers for us are seniors. You also have to shift your thinking into what people are looking for at the other end of the spectrum. They often have more disposable income than, than the millennials. I think we see some of that same thing actually in some of the residential categories that have really had an uptick in the last year or so also like single family built for rent, right? Where everyone says, oh, the millennials or the next gen wants to, well, it's really a lot of the baby boomers downsizing also who have disposable income and have the opportunity to kind of move and transition. So I think it sounds like it's it's both the live and uh, play side of things that are following similar, similar kind of um, trends or paths, which is interesting. So you've shared a lot of lessons learned and I think a lot of positive takeaways from data and your history and whatnot, maybe kind of thinking about things a little bit differently. Is there a difficult decision or something, not a regret, but a mistake that you've made or look back on that um, you do differently or you would approach differently knowing what you know now? Well, look, I think I've made a fair, fair amount of mistakes over the years. And again, I'm funny when it comes to mistakes. I and mean, I look at all mistakes as good things and they help. You know, it's not until you run into a brick wall that you realize you kind of got to change your know, direction a little bit. But look, I, I, have, I have a few and I'll, I'll, rattle, I'll rattle a few off. One is I've never really been an incredible trend buyer. I probably borrowed fixed rate too much and too early because I'm always predicting the next calamity. So you know, I've probably been a little too cautious in some of the things that I've done. Again, for me, the value was can I sleep safely? Um, but you know, I paid a lot of the fees in my life. Okay. Secondly, I liked seven caps. I liked eight caps. And I liked seven caps. And, you know, I had a hard time being in six caps. And so I was probably a slow adopter to that kind of thing. And it took took us a while to, you know, maybe get within the market of what, what we wanted to achieve. But, you know, I, I think the counterbalance to that is we wanted to build a responsible business. Um, and I, I look at my employees, I think I have a heavy, my, and they're really my teammates, and I really have a heavy burden to make sure they all have jobs and they there'll never be a layoff and they'll never lose their health insurance. And I've never done that for such sessions, COVID or anything. So I think, I think that's been good. I think earlier in my life, I was much harder on people. I didn't understand that not everyone was like me. Not everyone wanted to work seven days a week. We always... We're a six-day-a-week, full-time at-the-office company until my kids got older, really. And I realized the toll that took on some people. So I have heavy regret for that. I felt people worked in different ways, which I'm experiencing now with some of the work-at-home push and, and, all, and all the other, other things that come from that. You know, look, I, I think those are it. I, I mean, I think on the other side, I think we're, we're fiercely loyal. I think we're fiercely honest. You know, sometimes we have to have people talk us into do things. 
that we're trying to protect them from. You know, I, I think there, there, there's a lot of goodness there, but, you know, we've done more wrong, more right than wrong, but we've certainly, you know, made some mistakes along the way. Yeah, I think those are all great traits, though, if you're looking at them even as, as mistakes to be extra loyal, maybe risk averse, a little bit slower in the race. You know, the tortoise and the hare is certainly a story that I always come back to. And I'm sure your team and your staff and your colleagues around you appreciate, you know, that you've essentially had their back and looked out for them that, that way. And, you know, makes you probably appreciate all the success and the things you've done. And, and you know, knowing that just on a personal level, like what are, what are the things that are most important to you in your life? You've obviously mentioned kids and family, and I'm guessing it's going to be some of the same. Josh, I've been so blessed. Okay, I mean, for my in my entire life, I've I've gone narrow and deep and not wide and shallow. I still have the same best friends from elementary school. I love my family like more than anything in the world. My kids are are friggin' amazing. I love them to death. Uh, my fiance is incredible, and I hope she doesn't hear this because she's uh, way too good for me. Found like the perfect partner for this second half of my life. You know, there's people like you and I who've shared amazing experiences together and you learn perspective through people when you go deep. I'm very involved in an organization called YPO, Young Presidents Organization, which I've been now for 15 years. Got into it when I was 43 to meet other CEOs and talk to them, not about money and success and all that other stuff, but instead talk about challenges and self-doubt and guilt and be able to learn things. And I think I'd cap it off by saying this, I'm a learn-it-all, not a know-it-all. I love learning. You know, what gives me excitement is people love to learn and people are passionate. You know, those two things are just, you know, drive me. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. And I know you're good colleagues with our chairman, Gotti Kaufman, who's also in YPO with you. But to me, more than anything, it's that, you know, being a learn-it-all instead of a know-it-all. I grew up being told, you know, question everything, never stop learning, which one of the reasons I've always appreciated your perspective in our talks. And maybe that's a good transition to, to chatting a little bit about how you and I have met and some of your community involvement uh, and just all your kind of ethos on life, which I think permeates everything you do. But obviously, as I've mentioned, we're both very active in Los Angeles's Jewish Federation. We specifically serve together on the real estate and construction division advisory council. You served as a mentor for the program where I was a mentee in our community leadership. But can you, and you talked a little bit about what, what sort of instilled those values, I think, in you from a young age, but can you just share a little bit more about um, your community involvement, what got you there? And then in particular, I know you have a real passion around homelessness and you're doing a lot in that space, which is LA is extremely important right now. So maybe even jump into a little bit of detail on that, if you don't mind sharing. As I mentioned, I was highly touched at the camp, get Max Strauss. My stepdad, who came into my life when I was about 12, got me involved. You know, I wasn't particularly Jewish but um, at the time, but he got me involved in Stephen Weiss and Temple and Jewish causes. And it really, it really struck me, this idea about, you know, making the world a better place, you know, one person at a time, because it had done it for that for me. So my dad was very much an instrumental person in giving me that a joy. Um, I then had a girlfriend for a period of time whose father was an Auschwitz survivor, came out here, built his life up and very philanthropic. And then the, the real turning point for me was when I first got on the real estate business, I was 20 and I was working for this home builder. The home builder had an investor, a guy named Joe Shane. And Joe took me, we did, when we did our first deal together, he took me to Hillcrest. I'd never been to a country club. He took me to Hillcrest. And we sat down, and I thought he was going to offer me a job, Frank. I thought, I thought this is it. I'm, I'm wearing this beautiful, uh, like you know, red knitted tie and a misfitted jacket, and here I am in Hillcrest. He starts and says, "Sandy, now that you're on your way to be successful, it's time for you to start giving back." And he says, uh, "Pick a charity that you like to make a major contribution to, but it has to be meaningful." 
So, you know, I don't know what meaningful means. I don't know, you know, what he's saying. He said, oh, let's start with Vista Del Mar. Because maybe you'll do $5,000. Mr. Shane, I don't have anywhere near $5,000. No, no, I'll loan you the $5,000. So he loans me the $5,000. I donate to Vista Del Mar and get involved. I really started learning the power of giving, you know, that, that kind of feeling you get. You know, it's amazing. If people haven't experienced it, you know, I can talk a little bit of how we've given our company the opportunity to know what that feels like. And money, when you see the difference it makes it, it re- and invest your time in it, it really made it made a huge difference. So that really kickstarted me. And that that's when I got him also. Joe's son, John, and I, John became a huge mentor of mine, continues to be a huge mentor of mine. One of my best friends, like, like a, you know, we're family. We still do deals together, but more importantly, spent incredible time here. And he's the one who reintroduced me to Camp Masterhouse to get on the Jewish Big Brothers board and the foundation. And that really started a lot of things for me. You know, obviously, I'm, in, I'm on the Federation board. I'm on the um, Jewish Big Brothers board. I'm on the Camp Masterhouse Foundation board. I'm on the uh, Stephen S. Weiss board. You know, and God knows I'm on plenty of other boards. But that's all, what's, what's important. And what's important is... If you can take a little bit of good fortune that you had in your life and and pick very deliberately places where you're gonna where you're gonna apply it and spend time making sure that those are good investments. They're not, these aren't gifts, these are investments that you can make a a enormous difference. And an example that we, we've done at our company, then I'll get into homelessness because things are relevant. Um, the, the big thing we've done at our company is we said to our company when major events happen, we'll set aside some money and we'll give people. So when I sell a deal, I might say to 10 people in our company who are involved, tell you what, we'll give each of you $10,000. You have to give it away. Here's the criteria. It has to be a charity that's meaningfully touched you or where it has to be something that's in the immediate community. So it makes a difference in the community where we bought it. Or you can find, do, do some research and just find something else that does grab you. And it, but it has to be a 501c3. And Believe me, you see, even when you give people money, sometimes how hard it is for them to get in the mindset. But once they do it, it's a repetitive kind of thing. And so it's been fantastic. On homelessness, you know, it comes from this basic idea. I, you know, I easily could have been homeless. Trust me, you could easily have been homeless. The difference between the homeless guy and us is very, very small. We try in our minds to justify it. That guy is an alcoholic. That that lady, uh, you know, was a drug abuser. That person, you know, you know, went through the criminal system. We try to separate it. We try to create this. I can see that there's something different about but that mental illness. They're not us. Okay, it's the exact opposite. Okay, no one was born in that situation. No one came out of the womb and said. You know, I'm going to be a drug addict. I'm going to be alcoholic. I'm going to be, you know, I'm, I'm going to be mentally ill. The 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 idea is that people are affected by their environment in re, in react different ways. And what people don't even know is the basic fact. If I asked you what percentage of people on the streets, in the especially the, the newly homeless, what percentage are related to drugs, alcohol, or mental illness, most people would say it's 80, 90 percent. But it's the other way. It's it's it's. One third are in that category. Two thirds are situational homeless, um, lost a job, car broke down, you know, couldn't afford the rent. You know, it, it, it's shocking. So the way we've chosen to address it is on a few different levels. One is every one of our shopping centers are in communities that are experiencing homelessness. I'm sorry. To, I'm sorry to say that because it wasn't always like that. It used to be certain areas where you could say it, but now it's everywhere from Thousand Oaks to San Diego to Colorado to Chicago, wherever you are, you're experiencing homeless homelessness. So one is 
what solutions can we do at the center level? And we work closely with our tenants and others. And during COVID, we had we had um, you know these these days where we we would have these special things where the homeless would come and we would give them survival bags and we would give them the list of the local shelters and we'd call the shelters and open have open times when they can come visit. So that's one whole category of things we could do locally, entrenching ourselves with the local authorities who are, are working around that. Working with law enforcement, who of course there's a balancing act between what is a law enforcement action versus a social intervention action. Secondly, I've worked with YPO and we started a YPO Alliance and Homelessness which is made up of, of CEOs throughout the world. I started through when I was chair of the real estate network for YPO, but also the People Action Network and the Family Network. And the idea there is educate CEOs so they know what the problem is first, because often we guess wrong. If we're solving a problem for addicts, it's not the same as solving prod, um, a problem for a guy who just needs to find another apartment to do and he, and he has a job or he needs a, a um, apartment deposit or he just needs a short-term loan, or needs his car fixed, okay? Different solutions. Um, so make sure people are educated and then figure out what are the, what are the blockers to action? Why, why are, do we have these stories that cost $800,000 to build a unit for homeless when, when it doesn't happen, when, when we can really build one for $100,000, right? Why is that? And um, and work through that and bring business people here. At the end of the day, business people will solve this problem. It, the government will, will be the collector of capital, maybe, but it's going to be business people who are going to have to solve this. It's going to have to have capital motivation to solve this problem. And um, I think it can be done responsibly. Yeah, it's incredibly inspiring to hear all the things you've done, the education you've provided. I think the getting your staff involved and making them feel a part of it, which then only just sort of multiplies or, you know, creates a multiplier effect is, is quite genius to be honest. So I guess from everybody, I'd say, first of all, thank you for the work you're doing in that space. It's certainly needed. And, you know, I agree with you. I think the business community is, is ultimately where we're going to find, find our solutions. And maybe just as a, a, for those who want to do more and get more involved, I mean, how would you advise somebody either in a leadership position or even somebody who wants to be, to get involved with the charity or take that first step to, to try to kind of branch out and, and get to ultimately where you are? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think, I think there's, there's a few ways in. I, I think people say they want to get involved and then they have to re realize they, there's a commitment to being involved, right? So, so you know, look, find one charity. Don't, you don't have to find 10 charities, okay? Find one charity and, and do a deep dive and see if it resonates with you and if it, if it captures you and their story captures you. And then don't just give money, but find a way to engage. And that engagement can be at a very low tempo. My case, for instance... A lot of stuff comes to me, but how, how I do it is I, I make, I'm very disciplined about it. I say, in any given year, I'm going to pick six charities. I'm going to support consistently. Some of them I've always supported. Some are new. I'm on their call list. I'll say, let me know when you have a need and I'll fill it. Others go into an envelope. And at the end of the year, I sit with my kids, my four kids and our family. We sit down and we go through an envelope. Say, kids, does this get you? Does this get you? Does this get you? And we create a list and we just send checks out to, to those and we divide it up between the kids and the kids call the five, 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 five and call them up. Say, well, give me this money. Tell us a little bit about your mission. And out of that group comes in a group that go into, you know, the six for the next year. It, it's a learning experience. Needs change. And some people have experience. Like my daughter's a special needs teacher. So 
obviously we're very heavily focused on special needs. For me, ensuring the Jewish future is very important. So for me, obviously, I'm I'm looking a lot lot in that in that direction. Home homelessness, you know, but what take just take homelessness? It's such a huge topic. Educate yourself first. Make these big topics. Break it down. Why are things happening? On homelessness specifically, if your listeners want to write me or call me or. I'm happy to, you know, provide feedback. Um, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of United Way. They have a huge everyone house kind of thing that they're working on. Go to the United Way website, look it up. They're they're doing a lot of homelessness. I love this. I mean, I love also that you've instilled these values in your children. You've instilled them in your employees and staff that I think for you, it's not just about supporting charities, but also passing on that mantra of support and, and kind of growing that, which is incredible. Um, and thank you for the plugs. I think if any of our audience want to, we'll certainly make sure we can get them your contact info or please check out any of the charities that Sandy just mentioned. But you're also taking on so much. I'd be curious. I mean, how do you prioritize your time and choose which paths and projects can, and work and charities and family? How do, how do you sort of choose how to pursue these elements and, and balance all of it, to be honest? Yeah, well, I don't know if it's, a, if, if it's a blessing or a curse, but you know, I have this ticking clock in my head that says, Time is a gift God gave me, right? And you have to be very deliberate about your time. And you have to have structure there, right? Because you could get sucked into these rabbit holes and all of a sudden you don't have time for your family, okay? Or, so, you know, I'm very structured, you know, as you'd imagine from an old computer programmer, right? I mean, I always made it a priority to travel with my children. Highly, highly, highly encourage people ask, what would I tell my, my uh, kids and grandchildren about what's important when they raise their kids? Travel with your children. Okay, travel with your children. And when I say travel, I'm not talking about big group travel where you know, you're laying on the beach and, and now you're reading a book and they're in the kids club. I'm talking about take one kid when they're fairly young, four is about the right age, and take that, you know, like we're going to Washington, D.C. and we're going to walk, walk and you're getting too tired and I'm going to get mad and you're going to want a lollipop and you're getting hyped up and then, you know, I'm going to get lost and do all those things. And you know, structure that time and structure your vacation and create tra- tradition. My kids know we spend New Year's together. We just got back from Paris. We were all together. It was friggin' fantastic, but they know we do it. They, my girls know we take a New York trip. We go every year to Disney World. Even even COVID years, we went to Disney World. We're going, we're going this year. So, so you build this tradition so you know you have a catch-all with your kids. If, God forbid, you have a couple of tough weeks where you don't connect, you always know you have connection points, okay? And, you know, I try to start my day and I look at the things I got to accomplish and I say, what do I have to do? If, if I know an entire day is going to consume me, then I know the next day it's going to have to consume me some other way. And, you know, you're going to have bad weeks and you're going to have bad months. But over the year, you got to look at it and say, did I take care of my family? Did I care, take care of my community? And did I take care of my business? And did I take care of myself? If you can check those boxes, you've done okay. People have this idea, Josh, and, and this drove me nuts when I was young. Because again, I've always had this ticking clock. If I'm not doing something, I'm going nuts. And they'd say, you know, if you died, you know, if you knew you were going to die tomorrow, would you be happy that your work is hard? I said, yeah, I'd be really pissed, right? But I'm not planning to die tomorrow. Measure the endpoint. If the endpoint is going to be 80 years, then you could die, right? I mean, yes, you could die. But if you're thinking your endpoint is 80 years, you got 30 years, don't look for balance like every single year. Look for balance over the curve and then you'll be fine. So the reason my life is as good as it is now was for some of that sacrifice I made earlier. You just got time that right. Yeah, I mean, a consistent theme, it sounds like across the board with you is sort of taking a long-term horizon or a long-term outlook on, on things, which I think has served you very well. And honestly, I, 
I'm, I'm like you in terms of the way my mind works also. So sometimes it's hard to remember, especially in today's day and age when there's so much data and information and requests coming in that, you know, take a step back. We're not living day to day. We're not even living month to month. There is a longer term horizon out there, which is which is nice to hear. So I, I like how you sort of bucketed and you've, you've created some structure, even if it's not day in, day out. Everybody knows when they get to spend time with you. It's it's really nice to hear. And we didn't prep for this conversation or this question, but maybe just off the, off the cuff, favorite vacation spot you've had or favorite one of your travels over time with the family? Well, I think it's, I think it's a great question. I, you know, and, I, and I'm conflicted with that answer because I get asked that question because I've, I've been to so many great places, but I'll, I'll give you the kind of the top of the mind right off, right off the bat. First of all, Washington, D.C. for me is one of the most interesting, most intellectually stimulating, great food, great everything, international, fantastic. Okay, I love politics, so it's a little bit has to do with that, but but it's not, you know, people think of it as only politics, but just the museums and everything else. So big, big hit for that. Uh, um, unrecognized wonder, um, Prague. Prague, fantastic, neat city, great people. It had had, it had an absolutely incredible, incredible time there. Same trip, um, surprised the hell out of me, Berlin. Okay. Hip, young, nice. Um, you would expect very structured German people, maybe very obviously very stereotypical, warm. They're different. You know, they're all sort of they're, you know, Germans are multi-layered and very interesting, incredible museums, a lot about Jewish history. You'd be very surprised you know, what they've done since the war to, you know, make, you know, real good amends and probably the best Jewish museum I've ever, I've ever been to. Super interesting. You know, I think an off the beaten path kind of place, I would say my best, one of my best family places, well, I'll give you two, but, but one that a lot of people have heard, heard of, it's called Lafala in Fiji. It's the Red Bull Island. So it's owned by the owner of Red Bull. You can totally relax and read that book and do that other stuff. They have their own submarine. They have um, lots of snorkeling, lots of other stuff, incredible staff. Anything you want, they can make happen. And then finally, I'd, I'd be remiss. My kids would kill me, but this is the God's honest truth because if I didn't mention this, Disney. I'm a big believer, and I think that everybody should be visitors to Disney, Disneyland or Disney World for, for a couple of reasons. One is to reconnect what a kid's imagination can be to walk through and see when kids see things and they realize what's possible when, when time, when, when the world has made us think things are less possible and to see what's possible. Number one, number two, to look at how people like us, developers, builders, people who create functional spaces who create new worlds that people can experience and what those experiences mean to people. When you talk about connectivity and whether it's valid, we'll just look at the longevity and success of Disney, okay? And, and to prove how much it means to me, I have in my office a picture of a manhole cover that I took when I was at Disney World for my first or second time. And it was a manhole cover, oh manhole cover, but it had Mickey ears on. And I took this picture, I showed this picture everywhere. I said, how many people do you think Notice that there's a mouse, the Mickey Mouse ears on Zvankover. I said, probably very few, but because a few would, they did it. The few that mention it, talk about it because it makes that kind of difference to detail. I think that covers the gamut on, and although I, I love travel, so I just came back from Paris. I, I was skiing in Korshavol. There's a zillion great places. But travel. Yeah, well, I, I should say Sandy Siegel's travel experience is available for all. Call call you for your next booking, right? So, no, that's 
I think those are all great takeaways. I've actually had the privilege of being in DC with you. And so I've gotten to, to kind of take in some of the things that you're able to, to talk about from the historical and political perspective, which was just incredible. Um, and Disney, I think, uh, goes without saying, but just attention to detail. I think it's a great story for anybody that cares about place, brand, success, you name it, right? I mean, I, I my first ever you know, stuffed animal was a Mickey Mouse doll that still sits in my my parents' closet at home. So, well, I think this is all great. I want to be mindful of your time as well. Maybe just leave you with one last kind of overarching question of, you know, what's keeping you up at night that we haven't talked about? Or is there anything else that really we should keep in mind or where you see things going that you'd like to share with our audience here? Yeah, look, I don't, I don't, I don't sleep much. So, so uh, keeping me up at night is not, not hard, but here's what always has, has worried me is that there's such macro trends. I do Harvard every year with YPO. I go every, every year. Uh, last year's have been virtual. But the year before, 2020, I was sitting there at the end of 2020 in Harvard with CEOs from around the world and professors who were Harvard professors. And we were talking about what's the canary in the coal mine. And no one said COVID. We talked a little about it. Yeah, it's a thing. It's localized. It'll come and go. Nobody saw it. Look what it did to us. This sense to try to control the uncontrollable is very, very difficult. What keeps you up at night is, yeah, I mean, interest rates are going up and I have, I have specific loans coming due and I have tenants I need to get signed. I got all this stuff. But here's the thing that we got to learn in life that I think is you're not going to be able to control the uncontrollable. I mean, I've spent panels where half the panel is talking about wh- where interest rates are going, okay, or where cap rates are going. It's a fool's errand. I mean, there's a lot of data, but if people knew, if the Fed can't figure it out, we're going to figure it out. You got to know, like, assuming there's going to be things that hit you a certain way, how is your organization or how are you prepared to react to rapid change? Do you have that skill set in place? Because sure as we're talking about, whatever I say is my prediction for the future is going to be at least partially wrong. And what I think is going to impact me is going to be partially wrong. And if my team can't adapt, then I'm screwed. That's what keeps me up at night. Do we have the right butts in the right seats for the things we don't anticipate so when they happen, we can react properly? Part of that's data collection. Do you have the right data so that when it happens, it happens? Part of it is having the right people. Part is having the right strategy. Yeah, I think it's a great answer. And in general, I think you're... Your takeaways today, all that you share, these stories are all incredible. I know you've been an inspiration and a mentor to me, and I appreciate your willingness to kind of share this with such a large audience as well who can learn your story. We really appreciate your time and your participation, your willingness to join us on the podcast, and please continue to share everything you do with anyone that you can inspire, because I think it's it's incredible the sort of reach and the, the breadth that you've had. You really are one of the best minds in real estate. Josh, thanks for doing this. You're amazing, man. Thanks for saying this up. And with that, I want to say thank you to our audience. Please join us on the next episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate as well. Thank you and take care. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. If you are interested in learning more about RCLCO, go to rclco.com and follow us on Twitter at RCLCO. Don't forget to subscribe to new episodes of the podcast and make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for tuning into the show.